Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. This evening we're going to be in 2 Kings 3. Now the last time we, the message was struggling with God's will, which every so often a message comes along and I just know from the text this is going to be powerful. So if you didn't get last month's uh, 2 Kings 2 with Elijah and Elisha, again, it's very powerful. You can get it free online, the podcast, or if we have a CD in the back, we can give you one as well. Uh, today we're going to look at God saving Israel and Judah. You know, Israel breaks up as a country, sort of a civil war uh, after Solomon. You have your northern kingdom and your southern kingdom. However, there's a very strong parallel between the two, I don't want to say nations because it really was one nation split into two, but also the two kings, the one ruling the north and the one ruling the south. So we see a, an interesting dynamic between the two nations, but we also see an interesting dynamic between the two kings and their personal lives. So we're going to jump in. Chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Now Jehoram, the son of Ahab, became king over Israel at Samaria in the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and reigned 12 years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord, but not like his father and mother, for he put away the sacred pillar of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he persisted in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel sin, he did not depart from them. So the first thing we see is really this spiritual evaluation of the king of the north, Jehoram. Uh, now he is the son of the wicked king Ahab, and his mother is the wicked queen Jezebel. If we could put up the slide, and then we'll keep it up once we put it up, but I'm going to use this so that as I'm, you know, when you're talking about the Old Testament, you're talking about geography, you're talking about wars, kind of gives you an idea of, of what's going on. So this, this is really, this is modern day Israel. This is the Mediterranean Sea. You have really what we know as Jordan over here, Syria up here, and you know, Africa's down here. Uh, Europe is over here. So this is pretty much, but back in the day, Israel was kind of the center of everything. So here you have Jerusalem, which is the kingdom of Judah or the southern kingdom. And you see in blue up here is the northern kingdom. The ten tribes, here's the two tribes, which makes a total of 12. So this is what's going on in the north and the south. Um, it's interesting because Jehoram had wicked parents, but that didn't mean that he had to be wicked. Uh, I know for me, I grew up in a home where pe my parents didn't know God, they got divorced. It wasn't until many years later, after actually I got saved, that they got to know the Lord, but uh, I didn't have to follow in their footsteps, you know, I was presented with the gospel. I responded to it. Um, I was presented a few times. It didn't happen right away. Uh, but it doesn't matter who your parents are, what they did. You don't have to fall into that mold because you are a different person. You're, you know, you're not going to be held to what your parents did or your bloodline or generational curses or any of that, that stuff. Jesus Christ breaks through all that. But even before Christ, Jehoram had the chance to do the right thing and he didn't. So Jehoram's sin, according to the scripture, was Jeroboam's sin, who was, who was a king further back, of animal worship. 
It was kind of weird. You know, they had a, a calf, an ox, and they put these different altars. My son laughs every time I talk about the false gods and stuff because it's, it's weird. I mean, today people have their other false gods. They're false gods of self, of, you know, pluralism, etc. Listen, people are just that way. They don't want to follow God. They want to make their own image and representation of God. So Jehoram had animal worship, and he had these altars with these, you know, oxes and cows, and, and people worshiped at these altars. But heck, according, it's kind of funny because it wasn't quite as bad as mom and dad's sin. You know, mom and dad had a really bad sin. They had a little demon god named Baal, who was supposedly the god of the, of the harvest. He was a little creepy little thing. Uh, and so Jehoram didn't go as, as, as bad as his parents, but he did have following in Jeroboam's sin. It's very odd when you rate different degrees of wickedness. But that's what's going on here. Now, it's kind of sad. That, and, and today people do that, right? You ask somebody, you know Jesus? No, but I never killed anybody. You know, those murderers, I'm not like them. It doesn't matter. Unless you're under the blood of Christ, you're not getting to heaven. You know, it's, it's a very easy standard for everybody. But people do that. They compare. I never stole. I never killed anybody. So therefore, I'm good. And when I, when I knock on the door of heaven, God should let me in. It doesn't work like that. Right? So in, in his sense, hey, I'm not as bad as my parents, but he also refused to repent. Now, some speculate that Jehoram kind of attenuated his evil. You know, he was evil, but his evil was a little less than mom and dad's because he saw how God judged his father. Maybe he thought, wow, God is a wrathful God, and my dad didn't do well before he died, and he died pretty ignominiously or shamefully. I certainly don't want to follow in those footsteps. You know, who knows the heart of man except for God? You know, I can only tell you from what I'm reading here. So verse 4, it says, Now Misha, king of Moab, was a sheep breeder, and he regularly paid the king of Israel 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams. But it happened when Ahab died that the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. Now we look at the political situation under Jehoram. We looked at the spiritual situation. Now we look at the political situation. The Moabites decided to rebel against the northern kingdom when Ahab died. And this wasn't uncommon. So the, the new prince, he's, he come, becomes the king. Well, let's, let's see what he's made of. Let's push a little bit, see if we can get away with this. And this is really what's going on. It's a political situation. But if you look at the map again, so here's the kingdom of Moab. Right? You've got the north, which is what we're talking about right now, Jehoram. You have the south, which we're going to get to. Now you have the kingdom of Moab, and this is where the nexus point is. And that's going to come into play when we look at the war. Verse 6. So King Jehoram went out of Samaria at that time and mustered all Israel. Then he went and sent to Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, the southern kingdom, saying, The king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to fight against Moab? And he said, I will go up. I am as you are. My people is your people. My horses is your horses. And he said, which way shall we go up? And he answered, by the way of the wilderness of Edom. So the king of Israel went with the king of Judah and, who was an ally at the time, the king of Edom, and they marched on that roundabout route seven days, and there was no water for the army nor for the animals that followed them. And the king of Israel, Jehoram, said, Alas, for the Lord has called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. But Jehoshaphat said, Is there no prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of the Lord by him? One of the servants of the king of Israel answered and said, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, is here. 
who poured water on the hands of Elijah. And Jehoshaphat said, The word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. So Jehoram decides to go to war with Moab, and he enlists the help of the godly king Jehoshaphat of the southern kingdom. So you have Jehoshaphat, Jerusalem, Jehoram up here, Moab, and you also have Edom, who's willing to help these two out to fight with him. Uh, and we'll, we'll look at that. I like the maps because I think they really go a long way in holding your attention. When we're talking about this situation, I can throw these names at you like, where's Moab, Edom? Where's because the names have changed, right? This is actually uh, right around here is modern-day Jordan. Right? Up here is modern-day Syria. Over here is modern-day Iraq. I've just been doing this so long, I just know where these places are. But you throw out Edom and, and Moab, and what are you talking about? Actually, Saudi Arabia is down here. So just to give you a little bit of your, your feelers with geography. So here's the question. Why would Jehoshaphat, the godly king, why would he come help Jehoram? Well, it's really like a kinship loyalty. They were related, right? They were still from the, tribe of, you know, the tribes of Israel. And Jehoshaphat feels compelled. Okay, and it kind of reminds me of when you're in the world, because I was in the world, and some of you were in the world before you became Christians, and your crazy cousin starts a fight with somebody, and you feel, well, I better jump in with the fight, otherwise he's going to get whooped. And he might uh, see some smiles. I can see past these glasses. We all have one of them crazy cousins or brothers or even sisters in our family, don't we? And this is, this is the best way I can explain it. You know, he's starting trouble, he's running his mouth, and, you know, he's probably going to get beat pretty good, and you feel like you need to help your crazy cousin out so that he doesn't get killed. That's the way I liken this. Uh, verse 8. <laughs> So we see the three armies. Now they're going to do something tactical here. They muster up, and they're not going to go this way, because here's Dibbon over here, and there's fortified borders in the north. But it's really not so fortified in the south. So the idea is, well, tactically, we should go this way and attack Moab on its weaker flank. That's the plan. Logistical, pro logistical problem is, they didn't bring enough water. They probably thought, well, there might be some fresh water sources and we can dip our canteens, and that's what you do back then. They didn't have tractor trailers with potable water. They realized maybe there's a drought situation, maybe the water supplies, they thought they were there, they overshot them, but here's a real problem because there's not enough water for the animals and for the troops. Verses 10 and 11, we see there's a crisis, and Jehoram in the north and Jehoshaphat in the south handle the crisis very differently. So Jehoram, we see that he's, he's very negative. He's faithless. Probably has a guilty conscience. Oh, God's, God brought us out of here to kill us. You know, sometimes people run and jump to that. Got a probably guilty conscience. And he's pretty much blaming God for trying to harm them. And this is the problem I think we have in society when we don't take personal responsibility. And there's a lot of blame shifting in the Scripture. And, you know, thousands of years later, nothing's changed. Look at my circumstances. It's God's fault. It's this one's fault. It's my parents' fault. It's the government's fault. And you know what? A lot of times we have to look in the mirror and take that responsibility for where we are. And I've got to be honest with you. Before I knew the Lord, I looked at God as a vengeful God. I was in a religion, but I didn't have any relationship with Jesus. 
So I was a little superstitious too about my life and about what I thought God was doing and my circumstances and how did I get here and that's, you can see that in people. Jehoshaphat is a believer. His attitude is completely different. His attitude is, well, let's seek God. Is there a prophet? Can we ask about God? You know, God's here to help us. Two people yoked together in this war to completely different attitudes. And hopefully as Christians, when we go out and we deal with situations, that we handle different things differently as well. Hopefully we're more optimistic about where the Lord is and His care for us and you know, how He wants us to be successful and, and things like that. And here's another thing to King Jehoram's shame. It tells us right here that, verse 11, that one of Elisha, I'm sorry, one of Jehoram's own servants, he pipes up. Once, once a prophet of God is mentioned, he's like, listen, we, Elisha's nearby and we should inquire of him. Again, to the shame of the king, he should know this. He's got people under him that have less of a rank, but are men of better character than he is. All right? You can see that in any organization. Uh, this is the way Elisha is described, and it's my job to take the idioms, the Hebrew idioms, and make them palatable in English. But he says that Elisha is, who is he? He's the person who poured water on, El, on Elijah's hands. All right? So Elisha's the younger Elijah is the older. Elijah take, is taken up in the whirlwind. We saw that the last time. But Elisha is described as that person who poured water on Elijah's hands. What does that mean? That means he was a servant. And there's a lot of principles in the scripture. You know, today you look at whatever, the business world, you look at American culture, everybody's in, you know, they, they spent a month at their new job and they want to immediately be the foreman, the CEO, the owner. Life doesn't work like that. Um, there's, and there's a principle even in the church. You can see the, sometimes the rat race in some of these uh, ministries where it's just like they'll cut each other to get to the top. This is a church for heaven's sake. It's a ministry. But servanthood has to come before leadership. And that's, that's the understanding here. Elisha was an awesome, awesome prophet, but he was a servant first. There are some today that just they don't ever want to get their hands dirty. Not going to go far in life like that unless everything's handed to you. You know, we have to show what we're made of. We have to show that we can be of service first before we can tell other people what to do. And how do we tell them what to do if we've never been in their shoes? Very important. Verse 13. Then Elisha said to the king of Israel, What have I to do, to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother. And the king of Israel said to him, No, for the Lord has called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. Again, the wording... Sometimes if you look at an NIV or a living Bible, it helps to make it a little bit more palatable in the English. But, you know, here's a man of God, and, and the king of the north is, is arguing with him. And he says, no, this is the second time he says it. You know, the Lord brought us here to kill us. I don't care what you have to say. This is, this is the type of God I think he is. Obviously, he didn't know God. And Elisha said, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, stand surely, if it were not for the fact that I regard the presence of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, I would not even look at you nor see you. <laughs> this is a great exchange. But now bring me a musician. And it happened when the music, musician played that the hand of the Lord came upon him. And he said, Thus says the Lord, make this valley full of ditches or canals. For thus says the Lord, You shall not see wind, nor shall you see rain. Yet that valley shall be filled with water, so that you, your cattle, and your animals may drink. 
and this is but a trivial thing in the sight of the Lord. He will also deliver the Moabites into your hand, and you shall attack every fortified city and every choice city, and shall cut down every good tree, and stop up every spring of water, and ruin every good piece of land with stones. So the prophet Elisha, and again, here's the issue. The issue is, this was kind of a wilderness area, so they don't want to go this way because it could be a lot of resistance. So they go this way. They go along the circuitous route. And as they go down south and then come up uh, northeast, there's this wilderness area, not enough water, and this is where the problem comes in. A, it was a great plan tactically, and a lot of plans are great as long as they work out well. And apparently they didn't figure for the, the lack of water. So they, they go to Elisha the prophet and they say, we need help. So what does Elisha do? The first thing he does is he expresses his disdain for Jehoram's character. It's kind of a funny exchange. You know what? Your parents, his parents were no good. You go, go seek the prophets of your parents. You know, why are you bothering me? He knows the man is of little character. It sounds harsh, but it's really not. It's really not harsh at all. Um, because Jehoram was doing what? Leading the, ch- the children of Israel into sin. You see, we live in a culture where it's very politically correct. And I think it's sad because we live in a culture where people are afraid to tell the truth. And what do we do you know, in our culture? People lie to each other all the time. Maybe they'll talk behind their back, but to face-to-face, it doesn't help us when we are not honest with each other. And I think today people are afraid to say what the truth is. They might offend somebody. They might hurt somebody's feelings. And I tell you what, that's not reflective in the Scripture. It's not reflective in the Scripture. Uh, 1 Corinthians 5, the Apostle Paul, whom everybody, uh, you know, literary-wise is romantically in love with the Apostle Paul until they read really deep into the Bible in 1 Corinthians 5, he says, hey, you... That person who calls themselves a believer and they're a gossip and a slanderer and this and that, he goes, don't even have dinner with them. Don't even eat them. Don't break bread with them. Whoa, that's in the Bible, Pastor Joe? Oh yeah, 1 Corinthians 5. Very powerful. So there is a time and a place for, you know, discipline uh, and to to get somebody to look at themselves, you know? And unfortunately, we have a, a society of narcissistic behavior because no one ever goes to someone to their face like, uh, the apostle Paul did to the Peter, the apostle, and said, you're being a hypocrite. Remember that? I believe that was in Galatians. Galatians or Ephesians. I think it was Galatians. He calls him a hypocrite. And you know what? Peter changed. He was being a hypocrite. Uh, so I, I like this. <laughs> and basically, Elisha tells Jehoram, if it wasn't for Jehoshaphat over here, this good man, I wouldn't even be looking at you. I would go right past you. So we can either, there's a few things that, that can happen when we, and there's a cautionary tale here. When we start to hang out with people who are doing the wrong thing, or of low character, this is a precarious situation between Jehoshaphat and Jehoram. Number one, we can hurt our own reputation. The other thing that could happen is, um, it could go the other way. In this instance, Jehoshaphat actually helps everybody, by just his presence, by being there, because he was a good man. Elisha would have walked right past them. Now here's the caution. doesn't always work out that way. First thing is, if we, you know, if we keep company that's, that we shouldn't keep, number one, our reputation could be sullied. Especially if they're influencing us more for bad than we're influencing them for good. Number two, the company we keep may lead us into a sin that we might later regret. 
And three, the company we keep may get us hurt or killed. And this almost happened in 1 Kings 22. I love the way the Bible comes together. So Jehoshaphat, let's back up, right? He goes, and King Ahab, Jehoram's father, calls Jehoshaphat and he says, hey, I need help, the Syrians. I've got to fight them, but I can't do it by myself. Ahab was really an evil, wicked man. So Jehoshaphat, that kinship loyalty again, he goes into battle with Ahab against the Syrians. And what happens when we read 1 Kings 22? The Syrians mistake Jehoshaphat for Ahab and they start going after him to kill him. And Jehoshaphat panics and he runs. And God spared him. But I think God burned his butt a little bit to let him know, you shouldn't be here. You see what I'm saying, folks? And, and every person has to go through that judgment call. Am I here to make the situation better? Or by being here, am I going to be stained? And then I'm going to regret it later. And every person has to make that judgment call. So Jehoshaphat, we see this uh, in two situations. Verse 15, uh, maybe Je Jehoram put Elisha in the wrong frame of mind. And it's kind of funny because Elisha basically is calling for an instrument. And what is he calling for? Worship. Where's Pastor Paul when you need him? Elisha needs your help. <laughs> but what happens is he calls for the instrument and he probably some singing and some worship and Elisha's now put it in the right frame of mind. So now he can talk to God because Jehoram probably put him in the wrong frame of mind. Contrary to popular belief, some people today think worship is to get settled in your seat, but worship is really to put us in the right framework to receive of God's word, to hear him answer us in prayer, to have that, that sweet communion with the Lord. So worship serves a lot of purpose right here. It helped Elisha to get the right answer from God for the situation. Verse 17, he basically says, Elisha, you're not going to see the storm coming. Now, this could mean that the storm was either very far off and they were in a low level and the water just came and filled in those trenches, or it was a miraculous deluge. Uh, and the idea was not to arouse the suspicion of the enemy. We'll see why later. Um, Elisha basically instructs the men to dig trenches so that when the floods come, everything gets filled up and everyone's filled and hydrated. Um, able to go into battle. Now, notice this, that the people had to do something. They had to dig the trenches. Now, for a bunch of guys who were probably hot, thirsty, and uh, really dehydrated, it probably wasn't a fun thing that they were told, let's dig some big trenches here. But that's what they did, that's what they were told to do, and that's what they did. And they really, if you think about it, they had to have a step of faith, take a step of faith to do this. Because the blessing... Listen, sometimes God blesses us where the blessings just fall into our laps. And sometimes God asks us to be a part of the solution. He didn't dig the holes for them. He didn't put a big steel reservoir out there for them. He said, dig the trenches. I'll provide the water. You provide the holes. Right? And they did. I, I think sometimes in the church, sometimes with believers, the attitude is, I'm just going to sit around, complain, whine, and, you know, demand that God throw a blessing in my lap. It, it, that's not reality, folks. You know, God wants to see that we're a part of the solution. Okay? So verse 18. This is, this is really amazing because not only he... Their concern was they were going to die of dehydration. And that probably would have happened. There was nowhere to go. They couldn't backtrack. They would have been dead on, on the trip unless, you know, heavy rain came. And this was a miracle. It wasn't going to, maybe they checked the weather channel. It wasn't in the forecast. I don't know. But I'm supposed to laugh at that. 
thank you. <laughs> but verse 18, it says, uh, Elisha says, but it's a trivial thing in the sight of the Lord. You know, it's amazing. God can do anything. Uh, sometimes he's testing our faith. Sometimes he's testing our resolve, our, our relationship with him. For God to provide this water, it's a trivial thing. And then he basically says, furthermore, he will also deliver the Moabites into your hand. They were just worried about surviving. And God's like, listen, not only are you going to be taken care of, you're going to have your whistle wetted, but you're also going to win the battle. Now, he gave them the victory. We'll see that the people failed in taking an incomplete victory, and we'll talk about that. So verse 20 continues, Now it happened in the morning when the grain offering was offered that suddenly water came by way of Edom, and the land was filled with water. And when all the Moabites heard that the kings had come up to fight against them, all who were able to bear arms and older were gathered, and they stood at the border. Then they rose up early in the morning, and the sun was shining on the water. And the Moabites saw the water on the other side as red as blood. And they said, This is blood. The kings have surely struck swords and have killed one another. Now therefore Moab to the spoil. So when they came to the camp of Israel, Israel rose up and attacked the Moabites, so that they fled before them. And they entered their land, killing the Moabites. Then they destroyed the cities. Each, one, each man threw a stone on every good piece of spoil of land and filled it and they stopped up the springs of water cut down the good trees except that they left intact the stones of Kir Hirasheth however the slingers surrounded and attacked it so here's the battle and here comes the miracle verse 20 flash floods those canals were filled up and everybody drank I don't know about you but I've worked out on patrol when there's been storms and when you know and, and flash floods come down the power of water is incredible. Sometimes I'm like caught in it and I'm just watching it and I just praise God. I'm like, you're amazing. He completely stops traffic. I mean, what was a dry road now is filled with three, four feet of water. Any car that goes through it, it becomes a submarine. I mean, you, you ever see these flash floods? It's like, a, it's amazing how quickly inches, feet, the water starts to rise. God can do anything. Now, if they wouldn't have dug those trenches, it would have come and it would have gone. It would have been muddy and nobody would have been blessed. But they trusted God before they saw his hand. And folks, sometimes that's a lesson for us too. You know, we want to see everything. I, I want to see this, Lord. I want to, I want to, right now, Lord, you got to show me. Sometimes God says, listen, take a step of faith. You'll see it in good time. So when they were digging those trenches, they didn't see anything. They might not have even seen a cloud in the sky. But when they were done, the water came. Pretty impressive. Verse 22, now the, the water is shining, or the sun shining on the water, and the opposing troops, that one or two things could be happening here. They see what they think is blood. Now, I live in an area where um, there's a, a high iron content, just where I live, and sometimes it's, it's kind of in the ground, and when it rains, depending on where it is, the iron mixes with the water, and it, it's colorful. It's actually odd-looking. It's shallow, and the iron just kind of mixes with it. Uh, I've also seen where um, maybe on the highway or a situation where the rain comes down, and depending on the type of oil, if it's lighter than water, the water comes down, and there's a sheen on the top of an oil. And depending on how the sun shines, it looks different colors. It's actually fascinating. You know, it's the way the, the light comes and refracts and reflects and all that kind of jazz. 
So they could have seen it from the distance, seen the, the, after everybody was done drinking, these shallow pools with what they thought it was red. And they thought, oh, these three couldn't get along. They start to fight. Now we're going to attack them while they're weak. That's what they thought. It also could have been that God tricked them. You know, the overconfident Moabites mistakenly thought that this, there was a, a, a carnage and they were going to take advantage of it, not realizing that when they came in, nobody, nobody had died, nobody had hurt each other, it wasn't blood, and they get ambushed, right? Verse 25, and then the, the Israelites and the three armies do things and put things in practice, sort of what you would call a scorched earth policy, so that the Moabites couldn't come back again and rebuild and become a threat to the surrounding nations. Moab, the Moabites were sort of, um, I guess you could say they were a picture of sin. And they were very wicked. They were wicked for a very long time. And, you know, sometimes you read this and you're like, wow, that's harsh. But, you know, when it came to the Nazis, um, the Americans had to do some hard things to keep them from rising up again. Same thing with Imperial Japan and different nations over the years. Um, you like, you like, we've seen the atrocities. We don't want this to happen again. Verse 26, last two verses. Very odd two verses, and I'm going to explain it. It says, When the king of Moab saw that the battle was too intense for him, he took with him 700 men who drew swords to break through to the king of Edom, but they could not. They tried to breach one of the lines. If you understand warfare, Sort of like, the, the, remember the Battle of the Bulge. They, they tried to put a bulge and pop through um, the lines, and, and they couldn't do it. Verse 27, Then he took his eldest son, who would have reigned in his place, and offered him as a burnt offering upon the wall. And there was great indignation or wrath against Israel, so they departed from him and returned to their own land. The war is over, but the victory is incomplete. There was an incident that happened that kind of freaks out the uh, alliance of these three armies, right? The Edomites, the, um, the north and the south. They come together, they're winning the battle, and then the Moabites retreat. He takes some, some warriors with him. They hole up in this place. Um, he puts, and that's what, in some of these towns and cities, they'd have these high walls. Well, I don't know, maybe it was 20 feet, I don't know, but it was enough for him to go up on top of the wall and he kills his own son. It's really creepy. And he offers him as a human sacrifice to his pagan gods. Now remember, God always forbade human sacrifice, but the pagans did it. It's really a sick practice to kill your own kid like that. Um, yeah. Sometimes things happen in war that when the advancing armies see it, they're so freaked out by it that it's a deterrent in itself. And that's what I think happened here. You know, maybe they thought that Wow, these people are so whacked. The guy's killing his own son right in front of us. That, you know, if we breach the wall, maybe they'll hack us to pieces. Maybe they, they won't die. Maybe, you know, they, they won't submit. They won't be subdued. So they backed off. Now, remember, God said, you'll get the victory. It could have been that once they breached the wall, they would have all given up because they could have trusted God. It's, an, it's interesting, too, even as Christians, that God is very clear with something. And we're okay with believing the things that we can see happening in front of us. Oh, God is great. But then God's like, okay, now take a greater step of faith. Whoa, what are you kidding me? Pack up and go to, I don't know, Nepal and be a missionary. <gasps> no way. But the stuff happened in New Jersey, I can dig that. So 
you know, God has said, listen, it's going to be a complete victory. But, but they, they, oh, they saw the panic in the Moabites, and they ambushed them. Hey, this is great. The battle's going great. Okay, they, they hold themselves behind a city wall, and they see that, and they go, oh, this is creepy. This is disgusting. And they all, they take off. So it's a victory, but it's an incomplete victory, if that makes any sense. And I'll just use, now that I talked about Imperial Japan and Nazi Germany, uh, I remember, I don't remember, I wasn't there, but uh, during the Vietnam conflict, right, when journalism became video journalism and the images were sent back to the people of the United States, they saw some of the things that were happening and by public opinion, the president was pressured to pull out of there. Um, the GIs, and I know many of them, they saw the North uh, use their children as human bombs. They did horrible things to their own people. And in American culture, our young 19, 18, 20-year-old men saw that and it freaked them out. And then when the images came back to the United States, American culture was freaked out. And it's amazing, when the war ended, the North Vietnamese generals sat with the Americans and they said, we made you leave. And the Americans, I remember this, and the Americans were like, well, that wasn't fair, you didn't fight us openly. They're like, yeah, but we got you to leave. So there was a lot of things that happened in that conflict that freaked out American culture, the soldiers, etc. And we were like, you know what, we're done here. And, and we left. Just to put it in perspective, the South had asked us for help because they were being overrun by the North. And the North, because they were communists, had joined up with the Chinese and the Russians. And the South said, listen, we're being overrun. However, there was a problem with a lot of the South in terms of their governments. They, there wasn't a lot of honesty in government, so every time a government would rise up, it would fall, rise and fall, and uh, the United States eventually said, we've got to get out of here. So it was, it was really heartbreaking on all sides, but you know, to some, they came back wounded. Others came back mentally wounded, and they needed counseling you know, because it was hard to watch. That's the best I can do in trying to explain this to you. You know what I'm saying? That's my job. 27b, it says, there was great indignation and wrath against Israel. Is it possible that God punished Israel separately from Edom and Jehoshaphat and Judah? Yes. And we see this a lot in the scripture. Sometimes the north would get really idolatrous and wicked and God would punish his people. He disciplined them. Sometimes the south and he'd punish them. Sometimes both of them and he'd have to punish both of them. But this is just the whole ups and downs with the children of Israel. Um, again, it's a little hard to read. I've looked at a few translations. It's not entirely clear, but it's a suffice it to say it was an incomplete victory. And God wasn't happy with Jehoram. So the title of the message is, God Saves Israel in Judah. So let's look at this macrocosmically. It's a the big picture. Okay, We see one nation and one nation. And we see their behavior and their behavior, and God deals with them. But he does save both of them. Certainly the water situation alone would have destroyed the armies, um, and if it didn't, it would have weakened them, so the Moabs would have finished them off. But God spared them. You know, he made them victorious. Uh, if it wasn't for Jehoshaphat being there, Elijah would have turned his back, and they wouldn't have survived. That's the other issue. Now let's look at this microcosmically on a personal level. You had two leaders. You had Jehoshaphat, who was good, not perfect. He's made his mistakes. And we had Jehoram, who was evil and wasn't willing to repent. And you know, everyone has that opportunity in life. Right? All of us. 
You know the Lord, you don't know the Lord. God made you a free moral agent. You could continue not knowing the Lord, and you can continue knowing the Lord. Your choice, my choice. Everyone on the planet, we're up to about 8 billion inhabitants, everyone has the choice to follow God or to not follow God. It's that simple. To choose evil or to choose good. To choose eternal life or to choose eternal damnation. Those of us that have chosen life, hopefully we have a positive influence on others. Sometimes the Bible talks about situations and you're not really sure. I mean, some things are obvious. God says, I detest that. I'm going to deal with that. I'm going to discipline. And then sometimes the Bible says you just watch everything unfold and it doesn't really say. You have to kind of make your own determinations. 1 Kings 22, Jehoshaphat really shouldn't have been with Ahab. In this situation, it looks like he was a, a covering. He, he had a, a positive effect on the situation because Elisha says it's because of him that I'm staying here and I'm going to seek the Lord for you. So I think every person, and, and we all, and the, the cautionary tale, how we deal with our peer groups, how we deal with our professional groups, sometimes we're going to have a positive salting influence, right? Jesus says you're the salt of the earth, you're the light of the world. We're going to have that positive effect on those that are ungodly, that are unsaved, that are just ignorant of God. Maybe like this situation. And then in other situations, we may try to interject ourselves into a situation and find that we're not doing any good, but they're affecting us negatively. Now, I've been in both. And the stronger I get and the longer I'm a Christian, I'll jump into any situation for the most part. There are some exceptions. But as a new believer, and I, when I was weaker in my faith, I found that I would think I could jump into a situation and the result was, and maybe took time, that it, it negatively affected me. Fascinating, isn't it? Fascinating that a battle that happened thousands of years ago can teach us something today. All of us. So, take this information, and you know what? You pray about it. You choose. Maybe right now there's a situation you're involved with where you're, you're thinking, man, this really has an effect. What you're saying is hitting where you're scratching where I itch because I'm dealing with this right now. And I don't know. I can't see behind your frontal lobe. So I pray that we take this information, that we would be more of a Jehoshaphat than a Jehoram, but that we would pray about each situation, see are we supposed to be there or not, and if we are, that God gives us the strength and the power to have a salting effect on it. Let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfield. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening and may God bless you.